All right, guys, if you have your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in the Old Testament. Um, Open up to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, we're going to go ahead and read the entire chapter, 12 verses. And it says this. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod smash them like clay pots. And then you kings, he says, now then you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. For his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. What is your outlook on life right now? You know, as you look around at how things are going in our world and in our nation, are you a person that looks at everything with a positive outlook or a negative outlook? Maybe put another way, are you a person that looks at life with the glass half empty or the glass half full? If you know what I mean by that, the idea is, is you, we can, we, two people can look at the exact same thing and see different things. And, and it really depends on their outlook on life. In a lot of ways, our outlook controls our experience. People with a negative outlook and everything that's going on often deal, deal with feelings of anger or stress or hopelessness, anxiety, and many times fear. And yet, people with a positive outlook, people who look at life with kind of that glass-half-full mentality can can look at the same things and still have hope, can still have peace, even joy in the midst of those things. And it it doesn't mean they're always happy about the things they see, but because of their outlook, they they have the ability to, to handle what life throws at them just a little bit differently than the person who has kind of a negative outlook on life. Now, the question I want to explore today is, is what our outlook should be, not just as humans, not just as people, not just some superficial thing, but what should be our outlook on life as God's people, as Christians, as people who have the future that we do in Christ? Now, while it's true that the world we live in right now is difficult, frustrating, and at times just downright insane, um, because of who we are as Christians, because of who we belong to, and because of who is on the throne of heaven, we have every reason to have a positive outlook, no matter what gets thrown our way in this world. Why? One phrase, because we have a God that's in control. 
Our God is sovereign. We, we have one whose name is Jesus, who the Bible describes as not just a king, but the king of kings. Not just the Lord, but the Lord of lords. And it's, and it's not only that he's in control of our present circumstances, he's sovereign over even the future. He's declared the future, the Bible says. There is nothing that ever takes him by surprise. There is no person, person nascent, nation, or, or even Satan himself or any power that he may have that can stand against him. And, and even though we look around and it seems like uh, our world is spinning out of control, we can be sure, because of what God's Word tells us, that God's got this. Now because of this truth, because of what we're going to see in our word, word today, we as Christians should look to Him as our refuge in times of trouble because He is our hope in times of trouble. Not only for today, but for tomorrow and the week after that, and 10 gazillion years into eternity, we still have the same hope in Him. So today what we're going to be doing is look at this psalm, um, Psalm chapter 2, which was written by King David. Now, many of your Bibles probably won't have David as the author, but we can know from Acts chapter 4 that David is the author because he gets credit for it there, as we'll read here in just a moment. Now, as we go through this, we're going to be looking at this kind of from two different views. We're going to look at it from kind of a historical context because David, as he wrote it, was very much writing about himself and about his own life as king over Israel. However, there's another side of this that is very, very prophetic, meaning this was something David wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that really in its fullest sense is speaking of Jesus. Now we know this because of a couple passages of Scripture. One is that one in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. And I just want to go ahead and read this to you. It says, You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant saying, and he repeats what's in Psalm chapter 2 here, Why were the ancient, why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers gather together against the Lord and his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city, for Herod, Antipas, Pontius Pilate, and the governor, the Gentiles, the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. So David wrote this years before this, I mean literally centuries before this, not even knowing who Jesus was, and yet prophetically through the power of the Spirit, this, this really the full context of speaking about Jesus. We can also know this because of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. Those of you that are on the Wednesday night Bible study will remember um, in, in chapter 1, it says, uh, God never said to any of his angels what he said to Jesus, you are my son, today I have become your father. And so anyways, the only reason I say that is because it's important to see this from both contexts. Now really the, the application is the same in both contexts because David's confidence that we see through here, as calm that we see through here, was because he trusted in the Lord. He, he trusted in the, that God had the future in control, even though he didn't even know who Jesus was necessarily at the time. And when it came to David's life, you know, he definitely didn't have it easy. He, he didn't have an easy road to the throne, although, he's, although he was anointed by the prophet Samuel years before he ever took the throne. It would be years of struggle and difficulty before he ever became king. And even after he became king, his troubles didn't stop there. Throughout his reign, he faced battle after battle, war after war from both 
other nations, as we see kind of in our passage here today, but even inside his own nation, even inside his own home that wanted to destroy him and take what was his. And yet because of his outlook on life, because he knew who he belonged to, who had his back, because he knew who was in control, because he knew his future was in God's hand, he was able to go through those times with hope. Because he knew he, w- he belonged to the Lord, and he knew he belonged to a God who was immovable, who no one could stand against. Now let's look at verses 1 through 3 again here. This idea that he asks these questions. Some of your translations may say, why do the nations rage? The idea here is that these, these nations were really raging directly against God and his rule. The, the idea was godless people raging against not only God in heaven, but his anointed one. And again, in, in the historical context, David was speaking of himself, but we know from those other passages that really the, this is something that's going on still today, and that's God the Father and Jesus his Son. Now, these nations that David was talking about were probably the surrounding nations that were kind of subjugated under David's rule. Um, as him being the anointed king of Israel, they pretty much wanted out of it. They didn't like that idea because David was a man of God. You know, he, he was a man that um, demanded that, that people obey the Lord. The, the, not only the nation of Israel, those people that were subjugated to him, there was expectations that God was honored, and these people did not like that. And so instead of submitting to him, they began to make plans um, to be free from David. And, and, and we can see the way David wrote this, that really it was God they wanted free from. They didn't want to be under God's jurisdiction. They didn't want to be under God's law. And Israel, and very much David, represented that in a lot of ways. Now, what was happening in David's life is honestly something that's been going on for thousands of years. That This idea of the raging of the nations against God and his anointed one has been seen all throughout Scripture. You can read just account after account after account in the Bible where you see this. We can see this throughout history. We can see it still today, even in our very own lives. Now, in the biggest sense, this, this war, like I said, is against God the Father. It's against Jesus, his Son. Every war we see from the beginning of Genesis really is a, a holy war that Satan's really at the forefront of trying to thwart God's plan of salvation because he knows that God's plan of salvation also includes his eventual doom. And, and so the, the reality is that Satan has been standing against God, standing against God's people, trying to thwart God's plan in some futile way to prolong the inevitable, which is his eventual destruction. Now, what was true of David in so many ways is true of us today. He, he describes himself here as God's anointed one that these people were raging against. And we say, well, are we really anointed ones like David? Maybe not the exact same way, but very much so. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 21 and 22, where it says, Now it is God who makes both of us, and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership upon us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The Bible, you know, it says we're even royalty. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, we're a chosen people, royal priest, holy nation, God's very own possession. And so we can be assured that that if David was a focus of the raging of the nations, which again is backed really and pushed by Satan and his forces, we can be assured that that's still something that is very, very much going on today. There's this holy war that's being waged 
upon this earth and against God's people. It should come to no surprise then that we see kings and the rulers of this world still raging against God, still raging against His people, still raging against His church. As we think about how Satan has worked a sinister scheme against God's people throughout history, there are just so many examples that we can look at. I mean, I was thinking just this week as I was preparing this about the Egyptians, how they persecuted God's people, the Israelites, and enslaved them and did so many bad things to them. You have from the Egyptians to the Romans and kind of everywhere in between. I was reading this day about the Roman Emperor Diocletian, who was a huge opponent of Christianity, and it said that he was such a determined enemy of Christians that he persecuted the church mercilessly and fancied that he had defeated Christianity. He ordered the making of a medal with this inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. He also set up two monuments on the frontiers of his empire, one on each end that said this, one of them said, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximus, Herculeus, Caesarus, Augustus. He, he was really happy with himself. For having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. And on the other side, he said the same name, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. We've seen this throughout the Roman history, but, but guess what? He's dead and gone, and we're still here. It, it happened throughout the Dark Ages. God's people were attacked and persecuted. It happened during the Renaissance period. The Spanish Inquisition, in large ways, was against, very much against Christians. Thousands of people murdered. Even in the last hundred years, we have people like Hitler, like Stalin, that have just raged against God and God's people. Now, we know Hitler best for his persecution of the Jews, but that really wasn't where he was going to end. He, he had plans not only to eradicate the Jews, but it, but it said in, by 1942, Hitler vowed according to this man named Bullock to root out and destroy the influence of the Christian churches, describing them as the evil that is gnawing at our vitals. Some may not know about Joseph Stalin. He had this plan launched in 1928 called the Godless Five-Year Plan that gave local cells of anti-religious organizations, this called a League of Militant Atheists, new tools to disestablish religion. Churches were closed, stripped of their property as well as any educational and welfare activities that went beyond simple liturgy. Leaders of churches were imprisoned and sometimes executed on the ground of being anti-revolution. The few clergy who remained were replaced by those deemed to be sympathetic to the regime, rendering the church still more toothless as possible. This, is, this, this has happened all throughout history. Now, all those, those two men were defeated, Satan's scheming, the stirring up of the kings and rulers hasn't quit. Christians have been persecuted or still persecuted to this day. We were talking this morning with a couple of guys that, you know, there have been more Christians murdered for their faith in the last 20 years than in all of church history combined. The, the, the nations, the kings and the rulers are still very, very much raging against God and His people. Even here in our own nation, 
although we don't face the same type of persecutions that are going on in many countries around the world, the attacks are here. Just, many of them are just more subtle and, and devious. We think about kings and rulers. We think of, in our nation context, we think of administrations, Congress, legislation that comes down to universities, to schools, through businesses. And in our nation, it's come in the form of manipulating our children's minds through textbooks. In colleges and universities and high schools, children's minds being manipulated by teachers and professors to convince them that there is no God, that we're just fortunate enough to be at the top of the evolutionary food chain. It comes in the form of psychologists that are manipulating the minds of young people, convincing them that although they're a boy, they can be a girl if they want to, and vice versa. It's coming in the form of legislation that is that is bringing, this is the real thing right now, that is bringing, spending millions of dollars bringing psychologists into schools that will be able to diagnose children and give them drugs to fix their issues without the consent of parents. Friend, this is a war. Unfortunately, our government there's factions of it that want to eradicate God from our nation. Factions of it that, that see Christians and the church as the greatest threat to their power. They target Christians and Christian business owners for standing up for things that will go against God's word. We have our government colluding with companies to silence Christians, to push immoral agendas on people. We see it everywhere. This war is still very, very much real today. Kings and rulers making plans to go against God and God's people. Well, we have even crazier stuff, maybe that you not, you've not heard of, but I mean, I just, as I was preparing this, I felt I need to share some of these things with you. You may have heard of this organization called the World Economic Forum, an organization that very, very much influences many of our nation's leaders from our president down to most of our people in Congress. The leader of such group is a man named Klaus Schwab, who is a devout atheist. And this man that's a big part of it, his name is Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. And, and he said this, um, responding to something that Klaus Schwab said, talking about how we've been changed as humans and according to Horari, Schwab was referring to humanity as the sudden evolution that the elites have in store um, for the rest of us. And he says this, quote, In the past, many tyrants and governments wanted to hack millions of people, but nobody understood biology well enough. And nobody had enough computing power and data to hack millions of people. Neither the Gestapo nor the KGB could do it. But soon, at least some corporations and governments will be able to systematically hack all people. He goes on to say before dropping a chilling threat, we humans should get used to the idea that we are no longer mysterious souls, but rather we are hackable animals. This is anti-God in its greatest way. That this same group right now is, is 
producing computer chips to be able to download their brains that they can then transfer into other brains so that they can live in their consciousness for eternity. These people are also pushing what's known as the digital ID. They describe as a chip that will go inside the human body that will have all of their information on it. And in doing so, they can implement what's called a social credit score to where they'll have, like, all, um, they want to get rid of cash, they want to get rid of all money, all credit, and they want everything to go through a chip. You go to the store, you, they, they read your chip. You don't do what they want. You don't obey their ideologies. They can cut you off. They want absolute, complete control of humanity. And if, if you want to know who these people are, a quote from this man says that Jesus being the Son of God and rising from the dead is fake news. These are the people pushing the agendas not only in our nation, but in nations all around the world. Friends, what, what David wrote here hundreds of years ago, why the nations are so angry, why do they waste their time with these futile plans, plotting these things against the Lord and His anointed, it is happening very, very much in our world today. And I can tell you that these things are going to come to the, 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 the biggest meaning, in, meaning in, at the end of time is really what the whole book of Revelation is about. This, this world power coming together, this world leader that we describe mostly times in church as this antichrist, this, this beast that will rule the world. Revelation describes a time where unless people have this mark, they're not going to be able to buy or sell or do any type of commerce. This is a reality. And we're seeing this move very, very quickly in our nation and around the world. Now, what gives these people the, the mindset that they can actually do this? He, he says here, these plans are futile. They're absolutely senseless. These people don't realize who they're going up against. How could these people back then or even still today, how could they possibly think that they can get away with coming up against God and His anointed? And the answer is simply arrogant pride. Again, Satan's behind it, but the people he's manipulating are all too easily manipulated because they want power. They want absolute power. And the, and the big problem with pride is that it causes people to rebel against God completely. Kind of like these people, they want out of underneath God's control. The idea of God having jurisdiction in any way over their life, they want to rid themselves of any influence of God. And the bigger problem is that arrogant pride blinds them from the reality that they cannot ever stand against God. Now, now notice David's calm and his confident attitude here as he moves on. And he, he's asking these questions, but he's like, these plans are absolutely futile. And he goes on and says here in verse 4, but the one who rules in heaven laughs. He says that the Lord scoffs. At them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his anger. See, David knew these nations had no chance of standing against God. And as he thought about this battle from God's perspective, he imagined that God was on his throne just shaking his head going, you people have no idea. What a picture that is of God at his throne, all these people writing all their plans on the boards and all this, how we're going to come against God and against his people. He's just going, you all have no idea. What you're up against. 
Consider some of these verses. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 6. O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are God who is in heaven. You are the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty and no one can stand against you. Or Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5, that says, He counts the stars and calls them by name. How great is our Lord. His power is absolute. His understanding is beyond comprehension. Or Jeremiah 10, 12 through 13, But the Lord made the earth by His power. He preserves it by His wisdom. With His own understanding, He stretches out the heavens. When He speaks in the thunder, the heavens roar with rain. He causes the clouds to rise over the earth, sends the lightning with the rain, and releases the wind from the storehouses. Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, O sovereign Lord, You made the heavens and the earth by Your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for You. Do you realize that these people are raging against the God who merely spoke? And all the worlds came into existence? Read Genesis chapter 1. You know how the world got here? And God said. God said, let the stars fill the skies. Let them fill the expanse. Boom. There. Didn't take billions upon billions of years for them to form and spread out. God merely said, and they were. I mean, that's that's, that's the God we serve. That's why David could, could look at these raging nations and go, you guys don't have anything on God. He wasn't scared. He wasn't fearful. Daniel, two, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21 says that God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. There is nothing that has happened throughout the course of history that God has not been in control of. It doesn't mean that he caused everything to happen. That's not what I mean. But there has never been a time where God's been going, now what do I do? Never. Always in control. As First Chronicles 29, 11 tells us, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours, O Lord. This is your kingdom. We adore you. Now, Beyond the fact that God's just powerful, what I love about this is that, that, that David was confident of who he was in God. And it's something we really needed to just grab onto as well, because he's not the only one who was chosen by God. So are we, the Bible says. We, we belong to him as much as David ever did. But, but look at verse 6. He says, For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne of Jerusalem on my holy mountain. Again, in context, David was speaking of himself. Not in a prideful way, but he had the confidence that, that he was anointed by God, he was God's king, that it was placed there, and as long as he served the Lord, he knew God had his back. He, God had proved it over and over and over and over and over again. From the time he was a little boy to the point he wrote this, God had always had his back, and David had no reason to believe that he wouldn't. He goes on in verse 7 through 9, the king proclaims the Lord's decree. Again, this was him proclaiming this. About himself, the Lord said to me, you're my son, today I've become your father. Only ask and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. The whole world is your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. See, David saw himself as part of God's family, even really as God's son. He saw God as his heavenly father as he should. Now, was that, that's pretty a bold statement to say that, right? That, that I've become your son? He was just repeating what God had told him through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
Verses 12 through 14, the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring and succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. It wasn't by accident David wrote this. He, he truly believed that he belonged to God. God was his heavenly father. So David stood on the promises of the Word of God, and he honestly believed that, that he, if he had asked God to give him the power to overthrow any nation that stood against him, God would have done it. This whole idea about the clay pot and smashing them really was, from my reading, really symbolic of something that happened um, in, in, in Egypt. The Pharaoh had his scepter, and apparently he had these clay pots that were set up for the, over the, the, the nation or districts that he ruled over or wanted to rule over, and if he would take his scepter and smash that clay pot, it was very significant in the fact that those people were now under his authority. And it was just kind of this, just this picture of, of David. It was just like, these nations around me are nothing because I have God on my side. He didn't fear because he knew who he was. He, he knew who he belonged to. Same, we had the same truth. I love John 1, 12. As many as received him, he's given the right to become a children of God. We belong to him. We can call him Abba Father, Romans chapter 8 tells us. Or Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We have the same hope and we should have the same confidence as God's people. And there is nothing that any of these kings, any of these rulers of this world, not even Satan himself can do about it. Now, does it mean that it's always going to be easy? No. In fact, it's going to be difficult. I think of what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through as if some strange thing were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will, be, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed for the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. Just because we belong to God doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but because we belong to God, we can and should have the same confidence no matter what we face in this world as David did. I think of Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. He, he, Paul asks this question, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. And yet he says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And he's convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today or worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed to, revealed to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our hope, friends. That's what we have to look forward to. And what solidifies that even more is this passage of Scripture is not just about David. In a bigger sense, it's about Christ. So when he's talking about this idea of just ask for the nations and I'll give them to you, you'll be like clay pots with a scepter, he's going to smash them and, and break them to pieces. This is what the book of Revelation, the end of it's all about. When Jesus finally returns again to take the nations for himself. 
to take the world as his possession. He, he already has all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 tells us. Ephesians 1.21 says he's already far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Or Colossians 2.15 that tells us that Jesus disarmed even the spiritual rulers and authorities and shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. He's already won the victory. He's just prolonging until the time he comes and reigns here. But friends, that day's coming. This whole idea here about God placing his chosen king on the throne, that's really talking about Jesus. Most of your translations may say upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's not just talking about the physical Jerusalem. It also refers to the heavenly realm where Jesus Christ is sitting right now presently as we speak. And this idea that today you're my son, again, clearly speaking about Jesus. Only ask the nations, he'll give them to you this, odd, this, this iron rod. Smack. This is going to happen one day. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 19. And you know what I love about this passage? Is that we're included in it. If, you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be here. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one, could, no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, that's us, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Does that sound familiar? He himself treads the winepress of the fiercest of the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And even this, this beast, this Antichrist that stands up against him, this future reign that's going to just wreak havoc upon the world. If you read down just a few more verses in verse 19, he says, And I saw this beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and, upon, and, and, and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of burning brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, which is Christ. Do you see why David's like, I have nothing to fear? He's like, God, all you got to do is just rebuke them. Done. You spoke them into the world, you could speak them out just as quickly. And Jesus is going to someday. See, no matter how crazy this world gets, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is on his throne and he's never going to lose it. And maybe you don't never thought about this, but I also want to read a passage in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 28. Again, in context, this is speaking to the church of Thyatira, but relates to all of us who are faithful. He says, to all who are victorious, this is Christ himself speaking, to all who are victorious who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Sound familiar? They will have the same authority I receive from my Father. Friends, we have nothing to fear in this world. 
I don't care what the leaders of this world do. I don't care what their plans, what their agenda is. Our God is bigger. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And if we belong to him, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to be anxious about. We should walk through this life with absolute confidence. Now, the day hasn't come yet, but it's going to. And as we finish this out, we see this, this, this challenge and this warning from David in verses 10 through um, 12 there where he says, Now then, you kings, act wisely. He gives them a warning. He says, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's Son or He will become angry and you'll be destroyed in the midst of all your activities for His anger flares up in an instant. Again, in historical context, David was warning these nations that they needed to come to their senses because if they stood up against him, he had God's, God had his back and they stood no chance whatsoever. But in the greater context, it's speaking of Christ. It's this idea that, that, that Christ is coming someday and the fact that he hasn't come yet is only because of his grace, his mercy, and his patience. I think of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that says the Lord really isn't slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake because he doesn't want anybody to be destroyed but all people to come to repentance. In the book of Revelation chapter 14, there's this picture of angels flying through the sky. God sends his angels flying through the sky in the midst of this tribulational period proclaiming the everlasting gospel of Christ. This is how serious God is about reaching people. This warning is going out and he's saying, come, don't delay, because we have no idea when the day of Christ is going to come. Right now, God is patient, waiting on people to respond. So what does that mean for us? The Bible says that we are God's ambassadors, as if Christ himself were speaking through us to be reconciled to God. It's our job. Friends, although this is the reality that we live in, we, we have one of two choices. We can look at all this and be like an ostrich and stick our head in the dirt and go, la, 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 I, I see it, but I don't want to see it. I don't want to get fearful, get anxious. Or we can take confidence in the fact that our God, our King of Kings, is sitting upon their throne. We belong to him, and we should have confidence in that. And instead of sticking our head in the sand, let's get busy. Let's get busy with the one thing that has the power to break through all of this evil, which is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the gospel is the power unto salvation for those who believe. There is a power in the message of Jesus Christ, and we are the ones that are supposed to be out proclaiming it. We need to be the ones out warning people of this reality. That there's coming a day that Christ is coming back. And in that day, he's coming to judge those who are separated from God. So what should our message be? Our, our message should be for them to respond to the gospel by submitting to Christ as Lord and Savior, receiving the forgiveness that he offers and becoming part of God's family choosing to live their life, as he says here, with reverent fear and worship of him. Friends, that's our message. Can I tell you something? The, the message of Christ is not near as powerful if we don't speak the truth of the reality without him. Most of the time when we hear the gospel, it's 
Jesus loves you. Have him become your Savior. Why? David says here, it's, it's a warning. He's like, I'm warning you, kings. Ask, act wisely because he is coming to judge. If they don't understand why they need Jesus, why would they ever respond? The Bible tells us clearly, anybody who does not know Christ is Lord and Savior. Their eternity is eternity in hell. A place of everlasting anguish, a place of everlasting darkness forever and ever and ever. That's their reality without Christ. But guess what? As Christians, we have the solution. And it's simple as placing our faith in the one who died for us, the one who already took God's wrath for us, Jesus Christ, who went to a cross, who died, who rose again, who made, opened the door to heaven and made a way. And you know what we have to do? We have to run miles. We have to tell, we have to tell a thousand people about Jesus. We have to read our Bible day after day after day and go to church 5,000 times and maybe, just maybe. Nope. You know what he says? Simply confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. Christ did all the work for us. All we have to do is respond in faith and receive what he already did and make it count for us. And friends, if you've never done that, do that. Because the warning he gives to the nations is the same warning that goes out to anybody who does not know Christ. Things are crazy, the world's in turmoil, but our God is on the throne. And let us walk in confidence because we have a refuge and a hope in him and he will never fail. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day, for this time, for your word. God, uh, we, we do live in a crazy time, Lord. But God, it's not a surprise to you. You saw it coming. And Father, you have a plan. Let us trust in it. Let us not fear. Let us not be angry, frustrated, although it's hard not to be at times. But God, let us trust in you our refuge, and our hope. Heavenly Father, if there's anybody here tonight struggling with fear, with anger, with anxiety, God, I pray you would release them from that, Lord. Help them have faith in you. Father, God, if there's anybody here in this place or listening to this that has never made the decision to follow Christ as Savior, let them take the warning of David and respond today. Because, Lord God, we don't know if we have tomorrow. Heavenly Father, you made it easy. Your word says all we have to do is call out to the name of Christ. If I don't know you've ever done that, I pray that they would, that they would just admit that they've sinned against you, confess that they need Christ, ask him to come in their life as Lord and Savior and commit in that moment, God, to live their lives for you. Father, your word says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's as simple as that. Let them make that choice. Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, as we close tonight, we're going to stand together and sing a song. Uh